Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. The cool thing about this job of Jew in the City and running this podcast is that I get to speak to some really cool people. And one of my, I don't know, like life dreams is going on Shark Tank. Now, the thing is that they don't actually take pitches from social entrepreneurs. I found out a few years ago that I am called a social entrepreneur. That's Someone that likes to build something but not make any money. Um, so I enjoy building things, but um, they're not profitable. They're they're helping the world. Now the truth is that actually there are some entrepreneurs that actually do both. They can make money and um, and help the world too. And I guess maybe that's a nice segue for our uh, guest today. It was during Pesach. My family watches Shark Tank um, pretty religiously. It's kind of our Motzei Shabbos, uh, you know, family time together. And I think it's good for the kids to you know, see how you have dreams and build something from scratch. Um, and then also just the math side of it's really cool. Um, I mean, I think kind of from my family, my great grandfather was an entrepreneur, my father's an entrepreneur. So I really always um, kind of felt a pull in that direction. Um, and so while I actually saw a joke on Twitter uh, called Shark Tank, someone said that they could make Shark Tank and you could pitch Kirov ideas, but you know, that doesn't exist yet. Um, but so we were, during Pesach, we saw this guy named Ari, who got a deal with Mark Cuban for $2 million. And my daughter's like, I think he's from. Let's look it up. And sure enough, he is. Um, and so he is on our show today. So Ari Tolan, co-founder of New Milk, thank you so much for joining us well, today. Thanks, Allison. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, just a quick correction, and that is you're also an entrepreneur. You might need to have a for-profit business to get on Shark Tank, but you don't need to be a for-profit business to be an entrepreneur. So uh, you can now say you're third generation all right excellent okay i'll take it if uh you know if the guy that got the deal with mark cuban is saying it i will take that title um so um walk us up till you know that night that was probably a pretty big deal to be on shark tank and you know meeting with the sharks but um before we get there walk us back a little bit so we know a little bit um you know who you were before you got to that uh exciting moment that some of us dream about so where did you grow up how did you grow up in terms of your judaism yeah, so I grew up in Detroit, um, in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, I, I don't know, probably splitting hairs. You know, there's so many different classifications of, of Orthodox backgrounds, but um, I'd say, you know, uh, black hat background, um, went to all boys schools, um, went to yeshiva um, throughout high school. You know, people, you know, people in the secular world, if I were to tell them I went to high school from 7.30 in the morning to 10.30 at night, you know, it would like blow their minds. Uh, but for, for me growing up, that was perfectly normal. Um, and so, so that's my background. And after high school, did you continue on to uh, Yeshiva in Israel? Yeah, so I, I continued um, in Yeshiva in Israel, uh, a place called Yagdil Torah, Yeshiva called Yagdil Torah. Um, I was there for about a half a year. And then I just, I had too much. Uh, I forgot I forgot what the Yiddish term for it is, but, uh, you know, ants in the pants or whatever. I just, I just couldn't sit anymore. <laughs> uh, so I returned to Detroit. I went to community college for a, a brief period at night um, and worked as an entrepreneur in real estate uh, for a couple of years and then ultimately decided that um, I wanted to go back to school and get a little bit more education. So returned to school, got an undergrad degree and a master's degree um, and then moved to New York and uh, spent a few years in the corporate world and then back to entrepreneurial ventures. And where did you go to undergrad and grad school? I went to undergrad at University of Pennsylvania and I went to grad school at Duke. 
Not bad. Not bad for a guy that went to Black Hat Yeshiva. That's pretty awesome. Um, I knew I saw that in your bio and you were trying to be modest. So, uh, you know, talented and modest, but I had to make you say it. Um, and so what about sort of the lifelong entrepreneurial bug? It sounds like you had this when you were younger, you know, even. Um, so tell us about, um, you know, role models or sort of career inspiration. Um, when did you know that you wanted to, you know, build things as opposed to um, have someone else be your boss? Yeah, and so I, just because you called it out, I got to share one story from Penn, and that is, so I'm, I'm 26 years old, and I'm going to Penn. Actually, I have a couple stories, but just one. So um, I had taken algebra, I think in yeshiva, you know, maybe 10th grade or 11th grade. I didn't pay attention at all. I didn't learn anything. And so I'm at Penn, and I want to go to business school, and I read on a blog online that you should take calculus before you go to business school. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll take calculus. So I take calculus and I get an exam and I'm, you know, struggling through it, but it's okay. And then I get to something called related rates problems, um, which you need algebra for. And I remember the calculus, but I don't know algebra. And so I wrote on my exam, I, I don't know algebra, but here is what I would do if I did know algebra. <laughs> and so the professor wrote on his test, uh, you know, please come to my office. When he gave it back to me, he said, please come to the office. Give to his office and he said, hey, I don't mean to be rude, but how did you get into pen if you don't know algebra? <laughs> How did, you get into that, how, how did you get into Penn? How did you, how did you do that? Was that a difficult um, transition? Well, it wasn't a difficult transition, but it was just insane, you know, luck or siyata dishmaya or, you know, whatever you want to say um, that I got in. They accepted me on academic probation. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I did a good job. I put together a good application that, you know, sort of highlighted myself as someone who's unique and someone who really wanted to come and, and learn. You know, I kind of drew on on the stories of the, like the Godolin who like really wanted to learn, you know, and like, no, you can't come to this yeshiva. So I'll, you know, I forget, I'm forgetting, but you know, okay, I'll, I'll listen into the window. Right. <laughs> so, so I put together probably a good application, but I also, you know, got a certain amount of luck that they accepted me actually on academic probation. And so what I did is I made sure to not take calculus until I had, you know, completed the academic probation. And once I got through it one semester, I did well enough to get removed from academic probation and then I could take calculus safely and not have to worry about getting an A or whatever. Amazing. I mean, and I think just sort of the entrepreneurial spirit um, is always there of like having the dream and finding a way. I think that's what works for me now that I can call myself an entrepreneur. It doesn't actually matter. Like you have to just start doing, you have to sort of find a way to get there. And I think that's what separates the people that are like, I'll figure it out. Like meaning every time, like yesterday I was talking to a board member. I'm like, I think we're going to make a documentary. I never made a documentary, but I think we'll figure it out. Like how hard could it really be? I think that's what, do you agree? That's a little bit what, how, how, how it goes. Yeah. And you know, a common question that I get when I meet people in the context of new milk is they ask if I'm an engineer. And that question really highlights exactly what you're saying, because I'm not an engineer. But that didn't stop me, right? And any entrepreneur you talk to, probably 90% or 95% aren't qualified to do what they're doing. And the only thing that really qualifies them is the desire to do so. And I actually think about, you know, relationships similarly, right? If you want to get into a relationship and marry someone and then, and then be a parent, right? Does anybody have any qualifications for that? Nobody has any qualifications or, you know, I shouldn't nobody, but you know, most people don't have qualifications, don't have experience, but they're just going to commit to one another and then commit to the idea of parenthood. So um, not to be a single person, you know, lecturing about relationships and, and uh, raising kids, but I, I see those things as very similar. Yeah, I totally agree. All right. So now take us, so you did some work in real estate. So um, 
how did new milk come about? Um, this is a non-dairy uh, milk product, um, your milk nuts. You have a machine um, and you know that is in stores like Whole Foods that we mentioned at the beginning. And then you're also producing a product for counters. My son is going off of dairy right now. So this is something I'm thinking a lot about. So um, how did you get into um, this specific line of work? How did new milk come about? Yeah, so I, I had a previous beverage company called Happy Tree Maple Water. It's a it was a very interesting, very good product. Didn't have a ton of commercial success. It's the water tapped from maple trees. It's very nutritious. It's delicious. And I was in the industry and I had friends in the industry and it's a very difficult business to be in. Um, the distributors have a lot of power over you. Uh, the retailers have a lot of power over you. You're disintermediated from your customers. I didn't have a direct customer relationship, right? If you came into Whole Foods and you bought my product, I had sold it to a distributor who sold the Whole Foods sold to you, right? And so it's a very difficult business. And I had a friend, Joe Savino, who had a similar business. Um, and we would always just, you know, get together, have a drink or a coffee and, you know, just kind of, you know, share what was going on in our lives with our businesses. And we, we always knew that it was a struggle and so sort of had to be, you know, a better way. And we thought like, what, what do we really love in the grocery store? Let's, let's take the approach of thinking about the things that we love and maybe that will spur innovation for us. And so at first we said, oh man, we love kombucha, you know, oh, we love juice, oh, we love it. And then, then we realized as we talked about this a little bit that that stuff all comes and goes, but we really love, and that hasn't changed over time, is the fresh peanut butter grinders in Whole Foods. So I don't know if you're familiar, but they have a machine that grinds fresh peanut butter or almond butter in Whole Foods. And we realized we love that, and we're not going to change our mind tomorrow, Right. And then also there's a fresh orange juice and a fresh grapefruit juice machine. This is pre-COVID, obviously, in Whole Foods as well. And we love that. And also, we're not going to change our mind tomorrow. We're not going to say, today I love fresh orange juice, but tomorrow, you know, I think I'm going to get some Minute Maid, right? Mm -hmm. It just doesn't work that way. And so um, we thought about plant-based milk in particular. We're both uh, dairy-free, primarily dairy-free. Um, plant-based milk is unique for a few reasons. Number one, a lot of the plant-based milks out there aren't that good. They're devoid of nutrition. They have tons of you know, weird ingredients. But the other thing that's unique about plant-based is that the ingredients are shelf-stable. And so like plant-based milk is perishable. It has to be kept in the fridge primarily. But the ingredients are like almonds and oats. And so you know, And then the second thing is it's mostly water, mostly water. And so you have um, plant-based milk, which is shelf-stable ingredients, perishable end product. It's mostly water. The options out there on the market aren't that good. And it's obviously a massive category and growing very, very quickly. And so we thought we could marry these two things. We could uh, make a better product, better for us, more delicious, more nutritious, better for the environment, um, and marry it with a food tech component so that we can have a good business for ourselves, differentiated, and not something that you know the retailer is going to be able to white label easily. Mm -hmm. and so that's how we started New Milk. So when was this and when did you go from, can you take us through like any of your, I guess, like business numbers, anything that's public that we would have heard on Shark Tank? Yeah. So when we started, um, the idea came about in 2017. We spent about a year and a half developing our first prototype and we got very lucky with the development of our first prototype. We met with a multinational German engineering firm that makes mills. And in order to make uh, dairy free milk, you need a mill. So without getting into the boring details, we needed a mill. So we met with this company who said, hey, you guys make these mills. We want to make this machine. This is what we want to do. This is how we want to use it. And they said, oh, sounds great. And so we said, uh, so can you build us the machine? And they said, well, we, we, we build mills. We don't build customer-facing grocery store machines. And so we said, well, can you? 
<laughs> and they said, fine, but we have to charge you for engineering. And so we said, okay, uh, how much? And so they said, $10,000. And at the time, we felt that that was a good deal. And also $10,000 is not a lot of money to get a business started. I mean, we'd also have to pay for the machine. It was about $100,000 for the machine. But we thought, hey, $10,000 sounds great. So they uh, took about 14 months. They built us a machine. And in hindsight, we should have paid them a million dollars. So subsequent iterations of the machine, we paid between a million and a million and a half dollars in engineering for each one. And so the $10,000 was like just an absolute blessing. And it's really important because if they would have said a million and a half dollars, we might have said, eh, sounds, like, sounds like too much. We don't feel it, right? And so that was a critical piece for us because it allowed us inexpensive entry into pursuing our idea. So we're about 10 or 12 months into the development of the machine and Amazon acquires Whole Foods. We had a relationship with Whole Foods and we were planning on putting our first machine into Whole Foods, but all of a sudden our Whole Foods buyer leaves with the Amazon acquisition. She said, hey, I signed up for Whole Foods. I didn't sign up for Amazon. I'm leaving, right? And so we have this machine that's like 90% complete and hasn't yet been tested. And we don't know, like we just don't know what's going to happen. And so we said, hey, we have to get this machine in the store right away, right? We have to, it has to be in, right? It has to be like fait accompli, right? We have to create facts on the ground. And so we finished it up, no testing, put it in the store as quickly as we can in the Paramus Whole Foods. And uh, we turned it on, and we were hoping to do 100 bottles a week. That would be an insane amount of volume. A typical item on the shelf in the fridge in Whole Foods does maybe 10 bottles a week. We were hoping to do 100, 10 times more, right? And so we did 170 bottles our first day, our first day. Um, and so the response was just insanity. I mean, it was like everybody in the store stopped buying from the shelf, and they're buying from the new milk machine, which you know, quite frankly, it made sense. Our product was way better and it wasn't more expensive. And so um, that happened for about two and a half days. It was amazing for two and a half days and the machine broke, right? Because we put it in the store, no testing at all. Uh, so the machine broke and then we spent like six months basically fixing the machine every night and then praying during the day that it would make it till the evening so that, you know, enough customer traffic left that we could start fixing it again. Because in a grocery store, everything people don't realize as a shopper, but everything happens at night in a grocery store. So you walk in in the morning and everything looks good, but like there's a party at night. You have all these different sections of the grocery store. And what tends to happen is that different ethnicities work in different sections of the grocery store. And so at night, it's really like a party. You have like, maybe the Dominicans are working in the produce department and they're playing Dominican music and eating Dominican food and then maybe prepared foods, something else. And so the grocery store is like a really interesting place at night. And so we spent about six months fixing the machines every night and then, you know, sleepwalking through the day and like trying to do the other stuff to like build a business. We got our first big break. A uh, potential investor came to Whole Foods to look at the machine. And at the same time, Whole Foods sent their head of PR with a photographer to take pictures of the machine. And so the investor and I walk up to the machine and there's like a photographer and like, uh, you know, professionals, you know, standing by the machine. So that worked out well. We got investment. Um, and then since then, we're now on our fifth generation of the machine. But COVID forced a very big shift for us. And the shift and the realization that we had during COVID was, you know, we, one of the things we were trying to solve is, is to have a direct relationship with our customers. And we were definitely much better off with new milk as opposed to something sitting on the shelf, but we still didn't have that direct relationship. And COVID obviously was a big shock, right? It, it, it clarified a lot of things for a lot of people, but for us, we realized, hey, we're still stuck, right? We're still behind Whole Foods' wall. And so Whole Foods is an incredible partner for us. 
but we decided to quickly start working on the countertop machine. And that can be coffee shops, grocery stores, you know, boutique hotels and vegan restaurants, and also eventually kitchen counters. Um, so we feel very, much better about that, uh, not just from a business perspective, but also in terms of our mission of reducing waste, and increasing uh, plant-based diets, it helps us shortcut to that as well. Awesome. Okay, so now take us to Shark Tank. So when did you get the idea you wanted to be on? What was the application process like? When did you find out you were going? And how did you feel that night um, before you knew what was going to happen with the sharks' nerve levels? Yeah, so it was, uh, it was actually, you know, kind of one of our investors. I knew about Shark Tank. We thought about applying. Uh, there was an open casting. I think at one point it was raining. Uh, we weren't really, it wasn't really top of mind. And one of our investors said, hey, why don't you guys apply to Shark Tank? So I went, I literally went online. You know, normally you think, especially coming from, from, from background, you think, hey, who do I know, right? I literally just went online and I submitted the application and forgot about it. I always forget about something after it's done. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to sit around you know, thinking about it. So then maybe a week later, I get an email. Oh, wow. <laughs> they read the application. Uh, and then as soon as I got that email and had a chance to talk to somebody, I, start, I, felt, I felt very good. Because to me, it's just you have to just open the door a little bit and then you can kick it down, right? So as soon as there was that window where I could have an opportunity to talk to a live person, I felt good. But it was a very long process. It was about five months in total. And there were probably 10 to 20 different stage gates. Um, but everything is an interview. And so the day before, we're, it's the day before we're pitching to the Sharks and we meet the producer for the first time, if he didn't like us, we weren't going on. Wow. It's just their job is to make good TV. If he says, hey, these guys aren't going to be on good TV, we're not going on. Uh, so it's a constant application process. Uh, but it was, kind of, it was fun. Uh, you know, you have a lot of videos of yourself answering questions. It was kind of like every single job interview, school application, everything, date, everything rolled into one massive thing. Um, they... At a certain point, you switch from like an applicant to like a likely contestant, mm -hmm. and then the, and then you start working with someone um, who kind of like coaches you not through the process but just prepares you to to be on TV essentially. And so that was about a five month process. This past year was a little bit unique because of COVID, and so we had to quarantine for two weeks. We filmed at the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas. We had to quarantine for two weeks, um, get a bunch of COVID tests. And then we filmed at the Venetian and then, you know, immediately they, they kick you out of the bubble and go back home. Um, so what did you, I don't remember the, I remember that you got the $2 million deal. Um, what were the stats that you told to uh, the sharks? You know, what was your um, kind of, how profitable are you or what kind of revenue are you bringing in? And what did you ask for in terms of, uh, you know, uh, how much funding and how much uh, equity? How did that, what did you ask for? What did you get? And, you know, kind of what has your business done recently? Yeah, so we asked for a million dollars for five percent, and we ultimately got two million for ten percent from Mark Cuban, who was the really the only one that we wanted to work with. So that that worked out well. Um, our business, uh, there was an interesting dynamic throughout the show. Kevin O'Leary kept on saying, "Oh, so you lost two million dollars in 2018? You lost." And I kept on saying, "We spent two million dollars on R&D because the nature of our business is such that." We're not losing money on an operating basis, but it costs money to do the engineering to create a product and put it in the market. And so 
We've spent about $7 million on engineering so far over the past few years, both in the kiosk and on the countertop businesses. Um, and we're now in the cusp of coming to market and we have a potential huge opportunity. If you look at other successes like SodaStream or Keurig, um, we think that we'll slot somewhere in there um, with a sort of global brand opportunity and potential, you know, I'm not talking about likelihood, but I'm just talking about market size, potential billion or multi-billion dollar exit. From a revenue perspective, we're very, very small. Uh, we're, you know, we're, we're kind of meaningless almost, uh, but from where we are from an engineering perspective, that's what got the sharks excited to see a machine that works well, delivers, cost-effective, um, and make something that doesn't exist in a market that's big and growing very quickly. That's what got them excited. So it was your IP really and your patents that that protected you, or gave gave you the gave you the edge. You think? Yeah, I mean it's it's a a bit reductivist. I'd say it's it's not just IP and patents. It's really the totality of where we are and what we're ready to start to do. Got it. IP is uh, definitely a part of that, but you, can, you don't make money by IP unless you're a patent troll, right? You make money by executing on the business, and the IP is a little bit of protection that maybe is like a flank, you know, protects your flank, right? Protects your rear, but you have to move forward as quickly as possible and build a business. Let's talk Kostras because Lamisa people are going to want to get a, go out and get your milk. So tell us um, how the kosher situation is right now and, you know, what the um, at-home model is and then also where people can get this, uh, you know, these milk machines, these new milk machines. Yeah, so the best thing from a location perspective, we have a store locator on our website. We're in about a dozen Whole Foods around New York City and then we're about a few dozen coffee shops or grocery stores around the country. Um, from a Kostras perspective, we never got a Hefsher for our grocery kiosks. It was just uh, too complicated and not a priority for us. Uh, but all of our ingredients are kosher, and, and uh, nearly all of our ingredients actually don't need a Hefsher. I mean, we're talking about almonds and pink salt, fruits. Um, with that being said, by the time that we release the pouches for the in-home machine, we'll have a Hefsher. So we're moving to a new facility right now on Brewster. We'll be fully moved in in about a month. We'll start the process then. And so probably by midsummer, we'll have Hefsher. And, um, and where, when do you think the um, at-home counter um, products will be ready? Yeah, so we have two versions. We have what we call a professional version and then the standard version. The professional version, it will be available for sale later this year. It'll be August or September. And the uh, standard version is not going to be until next year, August or September. Okay, got it. So we have, all right, a few more months to get the, the more uh, heavy-duty one. Um, have you started working with Mark yet? Like what, what does it look like at like the day after Shark Tank sort of what's the feedback? Did people know that you are Jewish or from like, you know, I guess so sort of like from the business side and then also from the Jewish side. I think everybody who talks to me for five minutes knows I'm Jewish. Uh, you know, I think the only thing that throws them off is I'm like six foot four. So maybe when they see me, they don't think I'm Jewish, but as soon as I start talking, they, you know, I think it's a little yeah. more obvious. Um, you know, we don't really work uh, with Mark per se, you know, you know, if you think about it, you know, Mark is 10% of New Milk, right? You know, let's say New Milk sells for $5 billion, right? So 10% is $500 million and after taxes, it's maybe $400 million, right? Mark Cuban's worth $10 billion. And so there's nothing that New Milk can do that will have any impact on his financial outlook, right? It's irrelevant to him, even if we knock it out of the park and sell for $5 billion, right? So the key with working with people like that is, to forget about the money because the money doesn't matter, right? The question that Mark asks himself is, how do I want to spend my day? Mm -hmm. And so it has to be something that's engaging to him and makes him sort of want to spend time on it. Otherwise, it doesn't matter, right? So the money doesn't matter at all. So um, we, we send Mark updates regularly. 
when we have a question for him, he replies immediately. Wow. It's insane how quickly he replies. I mean, if he doesn't reply, like, I would say, if he doesn't, we've come to learn that if he doesn't reply within two or three minutes, he's probably not replying at all. Interesting. Which is fine, you know. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's exactly as advertised. Um, he's the real deal. He's very personable. He's very humble. He's a simple guy. He's from Pittsburgh. He's Jewish. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he, exactly as you see on TV, that's, that's how he really is in real life. At least, at least a little bit more that I've experienced of him. Very cool. Um, we're about to uh, end here, but um, did you ever think about any Torah sources that connect to being an entrepreneur or sort of daring to dream? I mean, I think about this. Any, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but any um, characters in Tanakh or, you know, Sukkim or any, anything like that that is entrepreneurial? Yeah, there, there's a lot, and I probably do so too much, but I bring a lot of Tanakh stories, even in secular context, in a lot of our conversations with investors and with everybody else. But, you know, I think of, uh, I think of Hushin bin Dunn. Um, as a little bit of inspiration. I think of Nachshon ben Aminadav as yeah. a little bit of inspiration. You know, he acted. Yeah. You know, both of those people, right? They just acted. And then there's also, um, you know, Aaron Avinu uh, making Shalom. You know, there's a little bit of white lies in there. And so, you know, you can learn a little from that. And then there's also, I forget exactly the details, but, you know, Hashem gave Aaron some, some instructions and Aaron just followed the instructions, right? And you know, I, I don't know if it was Rashi or whoever said, oh, well, you know, what a Hashem thing. He followed the instructions. And the question is, well, really, God told you to do something? And it's like a Hashem thing that you did what God said and he like literally told it to you, right? The answer is that everyone everyone wants to put their own mark on stuff. And so sometimes as an entrepreneur, it's like, just, just do it. You know, just, just do, it. do it. You don't have to exercise creative license on every single thing that we do. So um, I'm those, are some of the, those are some of, the, some of the things that I use. For me, I think Nasev Anishma, for me, is like one of the biggest things. It's like, you first you do it and then you then you learn you have to just the sort of the key is just get started and then later you kind of figure out what you know what the process is but go first because it's a sort of a weird order to how do you do it before you know how to do it but that's really what the entrepreneur has to do yeah it's a there's a transition in there also right you start as an entrepreneur and it could be a little bit of massive anishma but then once you take money and you have investors and you have a board Right. No, no bueno. Right, right, right. Okay, but fine. As, as sort of the point of beginning, of the point of sort of daring to dream or daring to do, it takes yeah. a little bit of just sort of like chutzpah and guts to just sort of say, I don't know how to do it, but I'll just do it and then I'll learn. Yeah, I mean, the best the best thing is jumping into the Red Sea, right? That's, yeah. that, that's the perfect example. Well, we are happy that you jumped into the Red Sea. We love all the Torah and the Mark Cuban stories all in one. That is pretty unusual. Um, we, we wish you... Uh, Continued Hatzlacha. Um, can't wait to try the milk um, and really uh, looking forward to some amazing updates from you. Thank you very much. Great to see you, Allison. All right. Thanks. Great to talk to you. And thanks for listening. You can catch the same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.